All right, guys. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, if you want to, go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. That's where we'll be hanging out a little bit today. But uh, we're going to be continuing in a series that we started a a few weeks ago, uh, a series that we uh, are calling Miracles. And so kind of the basic idea, the premise of this is simply that we would uh, start talking about miracles. Uh, There's a lot of mystery behind uh, miracles, why they happen, do they happen, those kind of things. Um, So we've been just, I think it's great. I was actually just chatting in my office with Garrett, and he was saying, I just love the fact that we are talking about this. And so we're talking talking about miracles today, and um, uh, we do know this. We've covered it a little bit. Bob did a great job last week talking about the purpose of miracles and that uh, the purpose of miracles are to bring glory to God and to bring people to him. Uh, They also talk about the validity of miracles. We've been trying to tackle that. So we had professor of theology Wally Kowalski came out out a couple weeks ago, and I got to sit down and chat with him. And uh, and today, before we jump into the majority or the main section of the talk, I want to continue just a tiny bit on that idea of the validity of miracles and the fact that they still happen today. Um, And I want to do that by inviting Paula, one uh, one of our members here, to come on up. And so would you give her a hand as she comes on up? Uh, so she experienced a miracle, and I found out 20 years ago, yeah. right, 20 years ago, right. um, like a full-fledged, real-deal miracle, and uh, just share a little bit about that experience sure. um, and what you, what you walked through. Yeah, so I was um, volunteering a year at an orphanage in Mexico, and one of the things this orphanage did is it went out to camps where um, people were living, and yeah, I'm sure you've seen those the blue tarps and kind of the old discarded materials. And they live in those villages. And some of the villages are huge, like, you know, hundreds of people. Well, these kids would come and we would provide them with milk and peanut butter because it fought malnutrition. And so um, they would listen to a Bible story and then we would give them milk and peanut butter for them coming. And so there was an incentive. So anyway, so I have a bucket. Yep. You get my bucket. I will get your bucket. So it was my turn to bring milk and peanut butter to this village, but I had brought only two buckets of milk, not four. And there were probably 45 kids more, you know, in line to receive the milk and peanut butter. And so um, they would fill up big cups like this. And so, I mean, they're pretty big. And then um, we'd give them a scoop of peanut butter in their cup, and that would feed them for the day, sometimes a couple days. And so um, the kids got in line, and we started scooping the milk. And when we got to the end of the two buckets, there was like a tiny bit, maybe an inch and a half of milk left. And there were all these kids, like 20 kids still left. And I felt horrible, just the pit in your, in your stomach. So I, I gathered this American mission team that was with me around, and we just prayed over this milk. And honestly, we it was no big prayer. It was just, Lord, I'm, I'm really messed up, so can you please multiply this milk? And we just started filling the cups full of milk. There was no, like, fountain of milk that came out, which I thought would have been cool, but we just started filling up these cups over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. We got all the kids that were in line, and then kids came and got in line again, and we filled it up and filled it up and filled it up, and by the end, there was still the same amount of milk left. It was yeah, crazy. So the, so the milk, like, did not move. It was in the same right. level 
and then yet you filled like, or you were able to fill all the cups of all the kids and even backups, which yeah, is amazing. Yeah, all the, they got in line yeah. again because, you know, like I said, this is their only meal sometimes. And yeah. so they get in line again and yeah. we just kept filling. Yeah. Like the fish and the loaves, like you made a multiply kind of a thing. It, yeah, it yeah. was crazy. What's the, my, my natural question to this is, because uh, I just want to know amounts, how much uh, milk do you think like that you gave after it was at this level and it stayed at that level, do you think that you gave out? I would guess at least, this is like a five-gallon bucket. I would get, guess this and maybe a little bit more because we just crazy. kept dishing it out. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. What did that, yeah. like, uh, I've never experienced something like that where, like, fish, something multiplied in front of me. I mean, I wish God would do that with my Pepsi supply in my office. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, like, uh, what did that do for your faith to see, like, to actually be the one scooping it out of there, yeah. putting it into their 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 uh, their cups and to see that it's not going down and I can still keep doing that. What yeah, was that like well, for you? First of all, the team and I just freaked out. We we're just like, oh my gosh, can you see what's going on here? This is happening. Like yeah. this is happening. And we just freaked out. But what it did for my faith is it just made me realize that God loves even the smallest of his of his oh, creation. And these kids were dirty and they had lice and it was in the middle of a field like nobody would ever know. And, yeah. and here God is providing food for them. And yeah. so just his love for his people. Yeah. That is so amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. God. Yeah, Thank you so much yeah, for sharing. My pleasure. That's, I Thank appreciate you. it. Paul. Yeah. You may, bucket. you can have oh, your you bucket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that, uh, I know God is, uh, still doing one of the things we just want to make sure and say is God's still doing miracles. I get that that was 20 years ago, but he is still doing miracles, uh, here, um, and today. And so, um, that's part of the reason we wanted to do this series. And I think that's huge. I think that's huge. The other reason that we wanted to lean into doing miracles is because of just some of the conversations that I've had with you, um, a handful of you, and especially even reading the connection cards and the prayer requests on the connection cards and seeing just how um, there is a lot of us in this room and even a lot more even in the last service who um, would have conversations um, with us and they have a need. Like there's, God needs to come through in some shape or form. That your circumstances have gone to a T, something has happened, there's a sickness or this situation and you just need God to come through. And so we wanted to take a series and take time to pray for that. And so believe it or not, that's what we're actually gonna do at the end of this series. And, or sorry, this service, not even the series. At the end of today, I wanna give you a little little bit warning now. We're going to open up the front of this um, room, the front of this, the altar, and allow you the chance to come up and pray for a miracle. Now that could be a miracle that you would have in your life, something that you need God to come through on in physical situations and you don't have the ability to change it and it's not getting fixed and I need God to come through in this. I don't know what that could be. Um, and you want to come up or you could pray for a miracle of somebody else, somebody that needs you to stand in the gap on their behalf. But we're going to take the time as God has asked us to do and to and to come and approach him with confidence. And we're going to do that today. And we're going to pray for miracles as a church at the very conclude of this message. So um, that's coming. So go ahead and prepare your hearts for that. To get there on the way there, what I want to do is I want to jump into a passage um, in John chapter five, the pool of Bethsaida. Um, it's a great passage 
What I think is so interesting about this thing is this particular passage was often used to dispute the authenticity of the Bible. So a lot of skeptics would actually point to this passage in the Bible and say that's not true because of this situation. And what they're talking about is this. The Bible here describes this pool of Bethesda with great detail. It says where it's located. Um, it says it's in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, which would have been north of the temple, on the north side of the temple. It talks about its unique structure, that it would have been surrounded by five covered colonnades. So these are like porches or alcoves. And it says those things. But what's crazy is we found the temple. We know where that's at. But we've, they were not able to find the remains or even anything that was closely resembled these, this pool of Bethesda. And so often, like I said, said, skeptics would take to that and they would point, look, that's a book of fiction. It's not true. The Bible is not true. What's in there, you can't believe it because this proves it. Um, There would have been evidence of the pool of Bethesda. But here's what's really cool. Prior to 1964, because in 1964, a group of archaeologists began to dig. They began to dig just a little bit deeper. And we don't know what they look like, but I'm pretty sure they look like this guy right here. And I probably didn't look like him, but the truth is there were a group of archaeologists that dug. They went a little bit deeper, a few more feet, and guess what they found? They literally found a pool, smack dab in the place where the pool of Bethesda should have been. In other words, it was always there. The Sheep Gate, right next to the Sheep Gate, complete with its five covered colonnades, exactly how the Bible described it to be. And so prior to that point, this passage was used to say the Bible is fiction, now it is used to point to the fact that the Bible's authenticity can be trusted and its historical accuracy is confirmed um, because of really cool factual things like this. And so that's why we say you got to read your Bible um, because this archaeological dig just only went to reassure what we already know in the truth of God's word. And so that's the passage we're jumping in. That's the background. Let me, uh, let me, uh, let me jump into the account, John chapter 5. This is where we will meet a man. And he's sitting beside this pool, the pool of Bethesda, and he runs into Jesus, and Jesus basically asks him a question. He says, do you want to get well? And it's this exchange right here that becomes kind of the turning point or the the greatest moment of this guy's life. And so let me read through the passage in its entirety, and then we'll go back through and break it down. So here's the passage, John 5, verse 1. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which that actually technically means house of healing, and which is covered in five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, we'll pause right there for two seconds, because if you were reading this passage in a good old-fashioned leather-bound Bible, you would notice that there is a B, a small lowercase b at the end of the word paralyzed. That B is super important. What it's doing is it's telling us that there is a footnote at the bottom, a footnote that's vital to the story, and we'll get to in just a second, but let's continue in verse 5 for the context of the story. Verse 5, one who was there, or one who was beside the pool, had been an invalid for 38 years. That means that he was injured, that he was sick, or probably in this case, paralyzed. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. 
while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then in verse 8, which is the best part, says this, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now, fortunately for us, the Bible does have, our Bibles do have footnotes. And this one in particular adds a great amount of context to help us understand the full scope of the story. So here's what that little footnote says at the bottom of the page. It says, and they, and so the they they're referring to is the blind, the lame, or the paralyzed. They waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first person into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, the reason, this is super important, that that notation is at the bottom of the page rather than up with the regular text is this, is because when John was writing, when he originally wrote this gospel, the people he was writing to already knew about the pool of Bethesda. They didn't need um, him to explain the healing properties or the potential healing properties to it because they already knew it. That would be like me trying to explain to you that we lost Super Bowl 49 as the Seahawks threw an interception on the one yard line. I wouldn't have to explain that to you and it's probably too soon to talk about it still. But everyone in Seattle knows about that. So I don't have to explain that to you. It's the same thing here, right? John is writing to people who have already heard about the pool of Bethesda. And so here's what's interesting is as the gospel traveled, as it went farther out, um, time passed and people didn't know about the pool of Bethesda, right? They didn't know not only about it, but they didn't know about its miraculous happenings. So one scribe, some thoughtful genius scribe while he was copying the Bible decided to write down a little insider information, a little footnote that gives us the full story for those of us like you and me who did not grow up to next to the sheep gate, that we wouldn't know about the pool of Bethesda. And so that's super important. That's why that passage or that piece of information is not up with the rest of the text, but it's critical to the story. And so let's talk about the pool. Okay, traditionally speaking, occasionally what would happen is that God would send an angel down from heaven and he would stir up the waters of the pool. And when that happened, okay, when the jets of the jacuzzi were turned on, the first person to enter into the tub, the first person to enter into the waters would be healed from their disease. That means any sickness, any malady, any like, you know, ailment would instantly be healed, now, here's the truth. We don't know, okay? We don't know whether this actually happened. We don't know if an angel would come down and stir the waters. But what we do know is that, because John doesn't talk about it, but what we do know is that a great number of people, verse three, uh, of the disabled, a great number of, here it is, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. And so a large number of people would come here. They would gather here. And what's important for the context of this story is that they believed 
that there was going to be healing there. Whether there was or not, it doesn't quite matter, but they believed that there would be healing there, and that's what they were looking for, and a large amount of them gathered. Desperate people, hurting people, people that are in need. They would flock to the pool. They'd come from all over the place. They'd get there, and then they would sit down, and they would wait, right? They would wait, And they would wait, and they would wait day in and day out, time after time, hoping against hope that today would not just be the day in which the angel came and stirred the waters, but that they would be the first one to enter into the water after it did. And that is where we meet this man, right? Verse 5 says, One who was there, one who was beside the pool, had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay? 38 years. Think about that. That's a long time. For 38 years, this guy waited. For 38 years, he had gone to this pool and his hopes would swell, only be immediately deflated as somebody got in ahead of him. For 38 years, he watched as other people jumped into his spot. For 38 years. I am 41, right? My wife thinks I'm 42, but I am 41. That means if this were me, I would have to have started sitting at the pool of Bethesda when I was three years old. And my whole life would have been there, would have been there. That is a long, long time. And I got to think for this man, I can't help but imagine that this place that had such hope has ultimately become kind of a cruel place. You know? A place where the most weak and the most vulnerable and the most needy are drawn into this great hope of mercy only to find that that mercy is that it favors the stronger or the less weak. 38 years ago, when this guy first got there, he's probably thinking, this is it. I found my way to healing. And now it was a place of hope and now it's a place of hopelessness. And so here's the weird thing about that, right? Is that with all this going on, as weird as it may be, the guy stays there for 38 years. You think about that? He's not been healed, but he stays there for 38 years. And the text does not tell us why, but I have to imagine that the reason he stays there is because this is the one place that he knows, right? It's the one place that he's gotten to know. It's become comfortable. It's not wonderful, but it is predictable, It is not great, but it is controllable and it is known. It is not the best life, but it is a life. And so this guy is there 38 years and all of a sudden Jesus jumps up onto the scene and uh, and Jesus is there and the text tells us that Jesus somehow knew that this guy had been there a while. We don't know if he knew that supernaturally or if he had just asked around, but he knew that this guy had been there. Um, It wasn't his first day, that he'd been there for a while, which makes his question, right, kind of an odd question or kind of a curious question because he says to the guy, do you want to get well? You think about that. Like seriously, Jesus, you are asking the paralyzed guy, the guy who comes for 38 years to sit at the side of the pool of healing, do you want to get well? 
And the answer is simply, of course he wants to get well. It's like everybody knows that. Jesus, it's, there's no reason to even ask the question, right? That would be like me asking you, does it rain in Washington? Or is the space needle tall? Or do cats, should they be wiped off the face of the earth? The answer is yes, absolutely yes, without question. Of course the answer is yes. The only possible answer that this guy could give to the question, do you want to be well, is yes. But catch this, he doesn't actually say yes. He doesn't. In fact, I think it's possible and probably probable that this guy right here, at this point in his life, He has got his eyes off. His focus is off getting well, and he's just trying to get by. There's a psychological term called secondary gain, and here's what it is. It refers to the indirect positives that happen in a negative situation. So, for example, the most common one is the common cold. If you have a cold, right, it's a bad situation. You have a sore throat sniffly, you know, you got a temperature, you don't feel well. But secondary gain is that maybe somebody is there to take care of you, to make you soup, right? To, to turn on the TV so you can watch Netflix all day. So that's secondary gain. It's not good to be sick. That's a bad situation. But the, well, there are benefits of people caring for you. One of the other benefits, I was thinking of this one, I'd never had a cast. How many of you have had a cast before in your life? right? You break an arm, you break a leg, something of that nature, and you're like, oh, that's bad. But I halfway always wanted to break a leg or to break an arm just so that I could have people sign my cast. Because you know how cool that was like when you were a kid? And uh, those people who broke their arms, like, it's not that cool, Jake. It's not that cool. But that's secondary gain, right? Um, Prisoners who have been in prison, um, in jail for a long period of time. It is documented that there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of prisoners who have got out of jail, and what is the first thing they do? They go and they commit another crime. Why would they do that? So that they can get back into prison, into the life, into the situation that they want, that is known, that, it, that is comfortable for them, right? They're, they have the option of freedom, and yet they don't choose freedom, right? They want the pain and the, and the torment of being in prison for the secondary gain that somebody will take care of me or that I can, you know, that it's comfortable for me. They become institutionalized. And so do you want to get well? That question, it turns out that's a much more apt question than originally ap- uh, appeared when Jesus asked it. Because as humans, we're like remarkably adaptable. We really are. We've learned to live in any condition. We can settle for situations in our life and we can just kind of be okay with that. We can limp along and we settle for a life that is less than the life that we truly, truly want. It's not wonderful, but it is predictable. It's not great, but it is controllable and it is known. It is not the best life, but it's our life. And this man was in a bad situation 38 years ago, but now he's got secondary gain. Think about this. He is at at the pool of Bethesda, is right next to the sheep gate. That's 200 feet away, actually. And so 
large number of people will actually travel through that area. Strangers will come to that area because that's where they got their water. They got their water to drink. That's where they got their water to wash. It's kind of crazy. So they'd come in there and he sits all day long by this sheep gate and the secondary gain he has is to beg, to elicit a response, to gain a small amount of money just so that he can get by. He's got the prime piece of real estate right next to the sheep gate and strangers will come in and he can literally just tell his story because he's got a great story. I mean, he can't walk and he just gets enough money to get by. Secondary gain. It's not wonderful, but it's predictable. It's not great, but it's controllable. It is known. It is not the best life, but it is his life. And that's where we're at. And in verse six, Jesus comes in and Jesus says this. He says, he asked him, do you want to get well? And the man's response tells us a lot about where he's at because he doesn't actually answer the question. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the man immediately begins to explain that he's unable to get into the pool. That's what he starts to say. And perhaps there is truly an implied yes, but the focus is all on what this guy cannot do. Do you want to get well? Yes, but I can't get into the pool. There's nobody help me. Do you want to get well? Yes, but I'd really like you to sign my cast first. That would be nice. Do you want freedom? Do you want to be well? Yes, but I want freedom in the confines of my own personal prison. Do you want to get well? Now, fortunately for us, we would never answer a similar question like that because we are wise. We are, we are, we are in modern age. Do you want to invest in the family of your dreams? Yes, but I'm going to work tonight just like I worked the night before, and I'll probably work late the other night as well. Do you want to be free from the burden of debt? Yes, but I just need to buy this one last thing, and then everything's going to be okay, right? Just right after that. Do you want to find a hobby? Do you want to lose weight, quit smoking, quit drinking, uh, stop worrying, give back, help those in need? Do you want to be a part of what God is doing in this world, in this area, to bring hope and healing and wholeness to this broken world? Yes, I do. God, I really do. But, but, and we never run out of ways to finish that sentence. We truly do not. And so we sit and we're stuck staring at this pool in the same situation as this paralyzed guy. Because it's one thing, catch this, it's one thing to know the reality that you need and to recognize that we aren't well, but it's an entirely different thing to be able to change that. To be able to change that. And here's where it happens for this guy. The biggest problem I think he has, one, is that he's staring off and he's looking at this pool and he's thinking the only way that I could have healing, the only way possible is to get into that pool. And so he's looking in the wrong place. Verse seven, he says, sir, uh, to Jesus, the the invalid man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And so he's looking at this pool and he's even looking to others to carry him there. He's not actually looking, catch this, at the man of miracles who is standing right in front of him. And so verse eight, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. 
That must have been quite unexpected for that guy, right? Completely out of left field because for 38 years, he stared off into a pool. He stared off into that direction, expecting that the only way that he is going to be healed is if he gets in at the right time. And for 38 years, his timing has been off. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some guy walks up named Jesus and says to him, stand up and move along. And I always try to picture what this would look like in these moments, right? You picture what these healings would be like. You watch the movies. I even did. I watched a movie on this, and it was so serious, right? It was so serious. So like, you know, pick up your mat and get well. And the guy didn't say a word to Jesus, and he picked it up, didn't even smile, and then just started walking. And he hasn't walked for 38 years, right? 38 years, I imagine that the moves that that guy made look much more like Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where Willy Wonka, Grandpa Joe was stuck in a bed with three other grandparents, mind you, for 20 years, and he gets out of bed, right? He grabs his hat and his cane, and he begins to dance around without any pants on because he hasn't walked for 20 years, This guy hasn't walked for 38 years, and all of a sudden he can walk. And it's crazy because he almost missed it, right? This man, Jesus, he almost missed him. All his hopes, all his faith, all the eggs that he had were in one basket. He focused it in, he zoomed it in on a pool, and he almost missed that the man with living water inside of him is standing right in front of him. But here's what I think. I think the one thing that this guy did, the one thing according to the scriptures, when you look at it, that he got right was this, is that he looked to Jesus. Did you catch that? His eyes moved to Jesus. He had his eyes focused on the pool. That's what's going to heal me. And then in the next second, he's looking at Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He looked to Jesus. And this man's story is a lot like my story, and maybe you can relate. That sometimes, personally, I will find that I'm staring off into a pool of comfortability, thinking I'm going to find a way to fix it myself. I don't need anyone to come in and help me with a miracle, let alone some prophet who just comes in. I'm going to find my way to fix it on my own. Be my own man's man. And I try to find that miracle on my own. And maybe today you're that way. Maybe you're at a place in your life where you look back and it's not what you had hoped for. It's not what you had dreamed, but it's where you're at. And maybe you want to look instead of the pool, you're looking at yourself. How am I going to fix this? How am I going to manage this? How am I going to take this and make the miracle happen for me? Or maybe like this guy, you're looking for other people to help you. Like, I can't get into the pool because nobody will help me. There's no one around to carry me down at that time. Maybe you're looking to your husband or to your wife to be the miracle in your life. Or maybe you're looking to somebody else, a friend, to come in and save you. And we're looking at the wrong place. Maybe you're looking at security, right? If I just get my 401k in order, if I just have enough money in the bank, if I just have this or acquire that or put myself in that situation financially, then I will be okay and that miracle will be able to happen. And so we stare off into a pool and we put ourselves, you know, we put our faith into everything else except for Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus approaches this man 
whose only focus was on what he could not achieve, what he could not do, what he could not reach. It was just beyond his way. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, get up. He says, because today you are healed. Today you are made well. That pool over there, that is not gonna help you. But I can heal you and I will heal you. The right relationship, friends, will not make you well. The right job won't make you well. The right house, the right friends will not make you well. The right body will not make you well. The right perfect family won't make you well. The best schools, the most stylish wardrobes, the coolest gadgets won't make you well. Admiration won't, respect won't, sex won't, popularity won't, promotions won't, prestige won't, money won't. All the stuff in the world that you could acquire, that you can even reach and grasp, will not make you well. But Jesus stands before you and he says, I can and I will. He's saying, don't look at that pool anymore. Get your eyes off that pool. Look to me. Focus on me. I have all you need. Not even just what you desire. I have what you need. That pool will not help you, but I can and I will. And so stand up and walk. Stand up and walk. And he said this to this guy. And what's amazing because of the power of God through him is that he does. The man stands up and he walks. And what must have been the most joyful strut in the history of struts that has ever happened on this planet. Because he hasn't walked for 38 years. And what's nuts is if you read this story, what is crazy and so bizarre that happens next is that this guy gets up, he walks away from the pool. Again, first time in 38 years, he left this pool being able to walk and somebody shouts, hey, stop it. Don't you know it's illegal to carry your mat on the Sabbath? And this guy's like, well, I'll be darned, you know? 38 years of of sitting down and I got healed on the wrong day, you know? Because these Pharisees were yelling at him. Because what happens is these Pharisees saw him walking and they begin to yell at him and Jesus enters back into the scene. And then they start to have this debate, this argument with Jesus. And they're saying to him, they're saying to Jesus that you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath because that's God's day and we're not supposed to do work. They didn't realize they were talking to God, right? But they were saying you can't do it on that day because it's work. But he did anyway. And so what Jesus does is he goes into this long explanation, this long reply. And there are two verses in that most convincing reply that he gives. And I want to focus in on those. Here's what he says to the Pharisees in that moment when they said, you can't heal on the Sabbath. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So I want you to think about this. This is crazy. These Pharisees, despite the fact that they knew God's word, despite the fact that they were trying to seek after him, were in the same exact position that this man beside the pool was in, was just in. Because what they're doing, catch this, is they're studying the scriptures. They're looking off into a pool, their pool of the Old Testament scriptures, thinking that's going to save me. That's what's going to save me. They go and they study. Like we go to church. So many of us, we go to church and we do what a Christian should do, right? We study the scriptures. We do our devotions. We pray. And we think that that routine will save us. They were talking, these Pharisees, to God himself. 
and they missed it. And sometimes we could come to church and we could do the routine and we could stare off into the pool and we're really thinking that's gonna save me. This routine will save me. And the reality is only Jesus can save us. And these Pharisees, if you think about it, they just went on living their life and it wasn't wonderful, but for them, it was predictable. It wasn't great, but it was controllable and known. It wasn't the best life, but it was their life. And the big difference, okay, I just, I said it before, the big difference between this man beside the pool and the Pharisees, because they both needed healing. I want you to catch that. They both needed healing. The man who couldn't walk, it was obvious, right? He, he needed to walk. But the Pharisees wasn't as obvious. They had a soul, a dark soul. They had a sin problem. And both of them are a miracle. We all need a miracle. The difference is this guy looked to Jesus. This guy looked to Jesus. And we all need a miracle. I'll tell you straight up, I'm, I'm right in the middle of, uh, of a miracle story in my life personally. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. Here's how it's come about. About six years ago, maybe seven years ago, we were affected by the economic downturn. Me and my wife personally, we lost our house. And we were a part of that. We had bought a house for the very first time. We didn't know a whole lot about what loans were, and either did anybody at that time. So we got the normal loans that everybody would get for a balloon payment and an arm. And when the economy crashed, because we bought our house at the height of the market, we ended up losing our house. And so we tried to do the right thing. We tried to pay the bank. We tried to communicate with the bank. It didn't work. In fact, if we would have stopped, I've thought about this many times, if we would have just stopped and done what everybody else did and not tried to do the short sale, we'd probably be up on our house at least $150,000 right now. But we lost it and we had to pay to lose it, which is crazy. And so for all this time, that's been like one of those things like, ah, oh, that is hard. That was a hard hit for us, Right? And so what we've done, my wife and I, since that point, we're, uh, we are like, we, I, we can live by a budget. So we have been saving money, saving money, saving money, saving money. We'd have budget meetings, keep every single receipt up to that point, and we would save money. And we started to get to this point where we realized that the economy or the, the, um, uh, the appreciation rate is going faster than we can save. So now we're falling behind. And so we have to buy a house but now we have this church where we decided to plant a church in Woodenville where I hear house prices are really affordable. Um, and so we can't find a house anywhere near the church, right? And so if we are gonna buy a house, we're gonna be living in Wenatchee and commuting every single day in order to be able to live in this place. And so we've been praying. We started praying. We started saying, God, would you help us find a house? Would you help us find a place where we can be close enough to here, where we can do the ministry that you have given us, but we can't afford it, right? Even though we've tried really, really hard. And so we just started looking and taking the small amount of money that we had, started looking. We found like six houses that were even close. It was so depressing to look at Zillow. You know what I mean? And realize that none of this stuff is even in our price range. We can't get there. So we found like six houses and we went and looked at all of them and we got down to five of them and we're like, ah, there's nothing there. And they're like, let's go look. We, went, we don't want to live in those places. And so then we went and looked at this last one. My wife's like, I really like it. So we called our real estate agent 
who we met that next day, right, at the place, the first house that we're going to go look at, and my wife and I were doing backflips. It's like, not only is this perfect, it's everything, almost everything, probably 95% of what we had on our wish list of what we wanted for a house, and it was there, and it had been on the market um, for an amount of price, and then they dropped it, right? So nobody, we thought, oh my gosh, we're going to get in, right? We're going to get in. And so uh, they dropped the price, and there's been no activity on this one particular house. So then we're going to put in an offer, and we're thinking, this is going to be amazing. We're going to get in. We put an offer in, and our agent comes back and says, "Um, so bad news is, that uh, four other people or three other people put in an offer with yours and yours was the lowest of all the offers. So in all the offers that came in in this competitive market, yours was the lowest. But yet, here's the deal, they accepted our offer. Isn't that crazy? They chose to do our offer. Now, what's nuts is I would sit in my office. I truly did this with Garrett. And he's like, dude, I think if we just pray and if you just look towards Jesus, I'm like, stop being a pastor to me right now, okay? Um, Because I was getting frustrated with like, this is not gonna happen. You know, this has been a pain that we've lived with for a while now. And, and, it's not going to happen. And then he's like, well, let's just pray for a miracle. I'm like, oh, whatever, pray for a miracle. I'll just talk about it on a series. Not really thinking it's going to happen. So, and the next thing you know, God comes through in a miracle. I think that it, not all of them are stand up and walk. Sometimes God moves and crafts things in his path and in your path to create a miracle, right? It's not all the eyes are opened. But in this market, to go in and be the lowest bid and get it just because they like our family is crazy. That's crazy. That is a miracle. Now, we haven't signed on it, so I'm still praying, right? But we're at the very, very end of that, that stage, and we're just working on financing now. But that is a full-fledged miracle that's happening right smack dab in the middle of where we are at, right? And it's Jesus, I mean, Garrett had to remind me to put my eyes and focus them back on Jesus on this. Because even I sometimes lose track and I stare off the only way that we're going to get a house is if we work really, really hard and we save more, more money, but yet God found and made up that margin. It was amazing. And so we've got to look to Jesus because it's only Jesus who can make us well. It's only Jesus who can provide that miracle to give us the best life that he promised. Okay? And that life... It's not predictable, but it is wonderful. It is not controllable or known, but here's what I'll tell you. It's pretty darn great. It's not a life. It is the best life when you choose to follow Jesus. Miracles happen around this man. If you read his story, everywhere he walked, everywhere he went, he did miracles on his left and on his right, and he even did miracles as he was just passing by in a town. It's amazing to read what this guy did. And our key when it comes to this church and it comes to our lives individuals is we simply have to get our eyes off of the pool, off of those circumstances, off ourselves, off of others, and put them on him and ask for that miracle. And we're gonna do that right now. Okay? It's a risk. I get that. To pray for a miracle, because what if it doesn't happen? Well, it doesn't happen. But he asks us to ask. He wants us to ask. And so we're going to ask, and we're going to approach him and his throne room boldly, and we're going to ask. So we're going to sing three songs coming up next, and my hope is that you will come, and if you have a need in your life, 
somewhere where God needs to come in. He needs to show up in your world and in a big way. I pray that you would come down here and pray. And maybe it's not just for you. Maybe it's for somebody that you know. Maybe there's somebody else that you know needs a miracle and you can't help them and you need to come in and support them through the avenue of prayer. I would say you come down here and pray. We've got three songs to spend time in prayer down here. And I get that it will be uncomfortable, right? I totally get that. But there is something about standing up and allowing your body to show an act of faith to walk down and to pray. Can you do it from your chair? You can right? But there is something about standing up and walking to the altar of God, kneeling down or standing up or raising your hands in surrender and saying, God, I need you to come through right now. It's like you're taking a step of faith when you take a step out of that, uh, that aisle. And you're coming down to his feet, to his throne room, and you're saying, God, I need you to come through. I need to be able to walk. I need to be able to see. I need you to help me in this. I want to serve you. And I don't care how long you've been praying for this. I just thought of this. Some of us have probably been praying for the same miracle for our whole lives. This guy prayed or sought healing for 38 years, but he was looking in the wrong place. The right place is to look to Jesus and to pray to him. And we are going to do that right now now. So would you stand up with me and let's pray and let's seek God in this time for a miracle.